Okay, so Exodus 21. We are beginning, it's going to be a lot, we're going to try to go a little faster now because this is not, not fun reading, uh, but we're going to begin this long series of case law from chapter 21 to chapter 24 in Exodus is basically God telling Moses how to apply his commandments in specific situations. Remember, we ended in 20, Moses went into the presence of God after God spoke the Ten Commandments to the people. And this is from chapter 21 to 24, is God speaking to Moses. This is what you're going to tell them. This is what you're going to tell them. And then in 24, Moses will come back and tell all the words of God to the people. Uh, these chapters, chapter 21 through 24, are called um, the Book of the Covenant. That's what they're usually called. And basically it just gives regulations about everyday life, case law. How do we apply this law if this happens? How do we apply this law if this happens? Um, and in this section, these chapters, it's not intended to give us every possible situation that could possibly happen, but it's guidelines for applying the commandments that we've already seen in specific situations. Now, I'm already going to tell you before we even start tonight, I'm not going to be able to answer every question that you might have about this stuff. Um, usually I try to anticipate and prepare for questions that people might ask or questions that I might have. But in all these different things, there's just way too many possibilities. So if you hear me say, I'm not sure, I don't know, that means that I'm not sure and I don't know. So this, this section of Exodus, it, like I said, it doesn't make for very exciting reading. Normally, if you know, you probably, if you have your devotional time and you're reading through Exodus, this is probably the part you just skim through, uh, but we can't do that. Uh, it is inspired, it is an error, and it's part of God's Word, and it's useful for instruction, for reproof, and for uh, training in righteousness. Um, but it is also very instructive for us in seeing the mind of God regarding justice, regarding holiness, regarding covenant faithfulness, how to love God, how to love our neighbor in everyday situations, in everyday life. Uh, and here, um, it, it's where it, this point in Exodus is where it becomes really important that we understand the different categories of the Mosaic Law. Do you remember what those categories are? We talked about them before we delved into the Ten Commandments. Three categories, civil law, Moral law, ceremony. We are going to look at some criminal law, but civil law, ceremonial law, moral law. You remember what they mean? Moral law is abiding law for all times, all places, all cultures, everywhere. Murder is always wrong. Adultery is always wrong. Civil law is simply for Israel under the rule of of directly under the theocracy, the rule of God. So there's laws in there that apply to things that don't apply to us. So. They're told you must build a parapet around your roof. And we talked about that, about what that principle was for, what that law was for, because they hung out on their roof when it was hot and all those things. And the principle, the general equity behind that law was you take care of people and protect them when they're in your house, you know, make it safe for them. Uh, also, there's punishments that we see in these laws. You stone them to death or you bring them out for execution or you cut them off from their people and and those are civil, civil judgments, civil punishments in the Mosaic Law that we don't do today because we'd be breaking our own laws. We're told by Peter and Paul that we're to 
uh, live according to God under the government that God has established for us, and we don't, we don't stone people to death. We don't do those things. And so we'll see that. And ceremonial law is law that deals with uncleanness and holiness before God, how you can come into the presence of God. So ceremonial law would be if you touch a dead body, you've got to wait seven days before you can come into the house of the Lord. We saw that the ceremonial law has been done away with because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So you're going to see, remember I told you, there's not one section that says, okay, these are all moral laws. These are all civil laws. They're interspersed all through there. And sometimes you'll have a moral law with a civil punishment that's attached to it. So you have to delineate between those categories because the New Testament authors delineate between those categories. But in all of the laws we talked about, we see this general equity, which means we glean the principle from the law and we contextualize it, apply it to our lives today and our situations today. So as I said, chapter 21 through 24 is God speaking to Moses himself specifically. And then 24, Moses is going to go out and tell the people what God said. Now, the first section of chapter 21 deals with slavery. Yay! So fun. So fun. Before we launch into it, though, we're going to see how God regulates the practice of bond servants, really, is what we're talking about here. Uh, but slavery, but you need to make sure that you understand that this, what we're talking about in chapter 21 of Exodus is not the same kind of slavery as we're accustomed to hearing about in early colonial America. So to prove that to you, I just want you to draw your attention before we start verse one, I want you to draw your attention down to verse 16 and one of the capital crimes that we're going to look at in Israel in verse 16 of chapter 21 is whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So God's covenant law for the Hebrews forbids any kind of kidnapping people, enslaving people forcefully by kidnapping, and it forbids the possessing of those who have been kidnapped. So it completely rules out what's called in the New Testament man-stealing. We saw that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. It completely rules that out. Not only does it rule it out, it's a capital crime. You will be put to death if you do this. You'll be put to death if you steal a person, enslave a person, sell a person, or possess a person that is stolen or forced into slavery. So what we're calling slavery here in chapter 21 among God's covenant people really excludes the idea of forcefully taking people against their will. Now, later in the law, we'll talk about prisoners of war of other nations that are, are enslaved, and that's going to be a little different. But here we're talking about a Hebrew that is serving another Hebrew. Now, here's the question, really. If all of the Hebrews came out of Egypt as free people, and if they're all free people here at Mount Sinai, hearing the law of God, and forced slavery among the Hebrews is forbidden by God, how would one become a slave in Israel, in the people of Israel as they're going through the wilderness, as they're entering into the promised land? How would, one, how would a Hebrew become a slave to another Hebrew? Yeah, bond servant, indentured servitude. So that is what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. So the Hebrew word evid is the word 
it can mean slave, it can mean bondservant, it can mean subordinate, it can mean a lot of different things depending on the context. So it, it, says, um, uh, it says slave in, chapter, uh, in this chapter, verse 1, but it's the same word that's translated bondservant and subordinate and maidservant and all those things in different places. So what we're talking about here really is bondservants. Now, we can, you know, we can... Um, we can paint a rosy picture uh, of what this looked like, but the fact remains that we know our hearts. We know the hearts of people. We sure know the hearts of the Israelites. They were sinful. We saw it all the way up to Mount Sinai. So it was and could be abused. It could be abused, and people no doubt did that. And so God gave these laws, these regulations regarding this, so that people would know that this is, not, this is God's will if this is going to happen. So if they came out as free and we're talking about a Hebrew serving another Hebrew as a, as a slave, as a servant, as an indentured servant, you need to understand that at least for the Israelites, we'll talk about prisoners of war later on in the law, but at least for the Israelites, it was voluntary. People would hire themselves out to serve another Israelite. Why would they do that? Financial means, wouldn't it? If a poor person or a person who is in debt and can't pay his debts, they would sell themselves into slavery, into servitude. There's no welfare system. There's no safety nets. There's no social anything. It was the only economical, feasible way for a person to survive if they can't pay their debts or they're poor or they're destitute or they have no way to live. Now, like I said... It's easy for us to paint a rosy picture, but we know our sinful hearts. It's all, this practice was always, even in Israel, it's subject to abuse, subject to the wickedness of sinful, sinful people doing what they want to do with their servants. So God gave laws among them, and He commands them, as we look at these first seven verses, and we talk about servitude or slavery here in Israel, He commands them that even their slaves, even their servants, their bond servants, are to be treated as image bearers of God. And so the first rule that he gives in verse 1 is that among the Hebrews, slavery, servitude would be temporary. He says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is God speaking to Moses in the, at the mountain. He says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. So Hebrew slaves, Hebrew servants, bond servants, were to be set free in the seventh year. Why? Well, be, yeah, that's true too. It's a Sabbath, Sabbath year. Every 50 years is the Jubilee, seven sevens, the 49 years, 50th year is the Jubilee year. Not only were the slaves released that year, but all debts were canceled. All property goes back to the household from which it came when it was sold. So among the Hebrews, slavery, servitude, bond servant, however you want to call it, it was not to be permanent. They were, and, and, and here's what's interesting. When, when a Hebrew slave, the ESV translates slave, some of your translations may say bondservant or servant or something like that. It's the same Hebrew word and it can mean those things in different, different ways. Um, when that Hebrew slave was turned loose, they weren't just turned loose out onto the street on the seventh year. The master or the employer, if you want to say it that way, if they're bondservants, they were required to give them 
all that they needed to start a new life when they released them in the seventh year. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12 says this, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go uh, free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press, as the Lord your God. God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this this day. So it was not just, okay, you work for me six years and then you out on the street and then you go figure it out. No, this was a practice that had a constructive purpose. If you were poor, if you were destitute, if you were in debt, this was a way that you would I don't like saying sell yourself, but you know what I mean. You would indenture yourself into service for six years knowing on the seventh year I'm going to come out of this, I'm going to be a free person, and I'm going to have all of this stuff with me to start a new life and to begin again with all of the, the provisions from my master's household. And while you were there in your master's household, you were provided for, you were taken care of. It was his responsibility to take care of you and to all your needs and all, all of those kind of things. So if a person was in debt, unable to survive, they would know that I'm going to indenture myself, I'm going to be a bondservant, but with an eye toward the fact that I am going to be free and this is a way that I can rebuild my life. So no matter what, where his needs would be met, he, this person, this person who is destitute or poor or whatever, in debt, they, they, they learned how to work in the context of a family and God's goal here is not just perpetual bondage or separating people into classes or anything like that. The whole point of it was at the end of six years, it would provide for people to help them to gain both their freedom and to gain security so that they could go and start a new life as a free person with all of the blessings that had been bestowed upon them from the employer, the master that released them. Any questions on that? Not the way slavery worked in the ancient world, I assure you. So even among, uh, even among this, this practice, the goal was not just, well, they're going to work for you and you're just going to overlord over them. The goal was eventually freedom, but also freedom with the means to begin your own household, to begin your own life, uh, to get back on your feet as it were. Okay? And even among servants, even among the slaves, God demands that marriage is protected. He says if, if he comes in single, if the slave comes in single, he should go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, remember if the master gives him a wife, she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. In the next verse it's going to say, but if he wants to stay, and there's a provision for that, so marriage is protected, even, even in regulations for, we can call it slavery or servitude or whatever, God preserves the sanctity of marriage. Husbands and wives were not to be separated as you see so often in early American slavery. Marriages were to be honored before God. But you also see in verse 4, there's this caveat. Now, if the master gives the servant a wife, when the servant is free on the sabbatical year, on the Sabbath year, 
the wife and the kids remain in the master's care. Now, it's my understanding of this that they're still a family, but the wife and kids remain in the household until that husband, with all the provisions that he's given, could take responsibility to redeem them and to bring them into his household and care for them. That's not in the text, but that's my understanding. It's a protection for the wife and the kids because if you've got a destitute guy, poor guy, a guy in debt, he's learning for those six years how to work, how to work in a family, how to provide, how to do all those things. He comes out with all the provisions the master can give him, and now he's going to start a new life. The, the wife and the kids have to be, they're the, they're the servants of the, the, other, the old master, so they have to be redeemed, but they have to do so with this husband setting up his household, able to provide, able to give them a safe household as the household that they're in. With me? Quite. With money. I don't know. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. Now, we're, we're probably told that somewhere in the law, but not here. And I, I, didn't, I didn't look up the answer to that question. I'm not sure. No, that's a good question. I just don't know the answer. She asked how much. How much money does it cost to redeem them? Uh, I don't know. Two cows. Two cows. <laughs> Stop it. No, no, okay, so you, we're, he, the question is, what if they start in year five, does the timeline? So we're confusing, we're confusing Israel's Sabbath years and the years of servitude. So it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter if, uh, it, it doesn't matter when they start, they serve six years. So on the year of Jubilee, now it, everything goes back to the way it was, everything goes back to normal. But so, so if you, you, according to this text, you serve six years, and the seventh year is your year of freedom, which mirrors the, the sabbatical law, the, you know, every, every seventh year you don't plow your field, every seven day you rest, and you, you know, those kind of things. That's how I understand it. I'll take correction if I need to. But like I said, there's a lot in here that I'm probably not going to be able to answer. So we read that he'll go out um, and wife and kids stay there, assumingly, until he can redeem them. And then the very next verse, it says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, pierce his ear with an awl, basically. And he shall be his slave forever. Why would someone choose to be a servant of a master forever? His love of his family. Love of his family? That, that's true. He says, I love my wife and children, but what else? Yeah, he loved his master. The master was treating him very, very good. He was taking care of his servants. He was treating them kindly, treating them with respect. He was loving. Oftentimes, servants, even, even in the Roman world, which was not a place that treated their servants very well, but even in the Roman world, there were, 
there were a lot of what we might call slaves who were very high on the social status and part of households and seen as members of the family. It wasn't always the case. Now, so don't, don't paint some rosy picture of slavery. It was bad and they were mistreated and all kind of stuff. But there were a lot of times that people that actually ran huge households for Roman citizens were actually slaves, but they had a lot of power, a lot of authority. They ran the master's household and were seen as part of the family. So it is possible that someone might say, listen, I've got a good life here. I've got a good life with this great family. My children love it here. My wife loves it here. And he would say, I, I don't want to leave. He feels like he is part of the household. And by having his ear pierced, his, his ear gored through with it all, uh, at the doorpost, he's making a public commitment to the household. The doorpost would forever be marked with the blood of the covenant that he is making with this household. And so you see this in the context of basically what we would call bond servants. You know, he is there. There is voluntary. It's temporary, but there's, uh, there's an opportunity for it to be permanent if they live in a good household, good, uh, good family, good master, good, you know, those things. Wow. That's a good question. I don't know. He asked if, okay, if the, the I'm assuming the husband says, I love my master, I love my wife and kids, I want to stay, I want to stay with them. What happens when the children grow up and become full-fledged adults? Do they get to go out in the, in the seventh year or be redeemed? Or I don't know the answer to that. I would assume, since we're talking about all Israel here, we're talking about Hebrews, I would assume once the, you know, if they're little kids, I imagine they're not much of, you know, servants in the household or whatever, but as they grow and become servants, maybe the seven-year law applies there too. I'd have to look. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yes. <laughs> like, like nailing his ear to the door if he don't don't want to be a don't want to be a slave and saying, oh, he asked for it. Yeah, well, that, that, I mean, there's, she asked, what would stop a master from abusing that authority, holding a slave up to the door, nailing his ear, and just saying he, he wanted it, but now he changed his mind or something. Um, that, in my opinion, that's man stealing, and you die. So these, you're going to see, we're going to walk through some more of these. We're going to talk about female servants in a minute, and there's a little different, and I know I'm going to get all kind of questions I'm not going to be able to answer. Uh, but all of these are demonstrations of the fact that the, the abiding principle is that all people are in the image of God, and they cannot be mistreated. They must not be mistreated. And so, yes, there are going to be people that abuse these things, but he has just given the Ten Commandments. And so you know, we talk about female servants and female maidservants. We all get, you know, we all get the picture of the, the scuzzy master that mistreats his little girl servants. And all. You know, that's, a, that's a violation of the commandment that was just given by God from the mountain. And also he's going to set in place things that keep that from happening. But the fact that this could be subject to abuse is, is just not... It's not deniable, 
But God is regulating these things and giving these commands so that this abuse won't happen and the people know that all people, including slaves, including the lowest of the social status, are made in the image of God and are to be, to be honored as such. So, female servants. Verse 7 says, When a man sells his daughter as a slave, yep, that's a good one, she shall not go out as the male servants do, meaning in the seventh year. If she does not please her master, very important right here, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. Now, she's not freed on the Sabbath year. That seems unfair, right? Okay. So, in the ancient world, a woman who was not, did not belong to a household was subject to all kinds of danger. Danger that... You, yeah, you figure it out, okay? Mistreatment. Mistreatment. So just to boot a woman out on the seventh year, even to give her, you know, oxen and all the things that we saw, that would be harmful to her. It would be harmful to her in that society. So it's hard for us to understand how that is benevolent or good, that she's just a servant, she's just a whatever. But if you read verses 7, 8, and then 9 through 11, which we're going to read, what we're talking about here is not buying, what he's talking about here is not buying a servant girl to just, you know, wash your floors or something like that. He's talking about in the context of he's talking about in the context of taking a wife for yourself or taking a wife for your sons. We're going to see that as we walk through it. So first let me ask, what kind of father sells their daughter as a slave? Why would God put that in there like, oh yeah, by the way, if he's, I mean this is one verse that's used all over the place to say the Bible's unjust. What kind of father sell why would they do that? Too many kids? Well, what? No, don't amen that. No, look. Right. So what he's asked, wouldn't the father be guilty of man-stealing or selling a person as a slave? Uh, that's right. That's right. The father's not trying to get rid of a daughter. He is trying to improve her prospects for a life. So a poor father, uh, in-debt father, whatever. What is being talked about here is kind of a form of arranged marriage. Do you see it? If he, if, 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 so when a man sells his daughter as a slave and she, she shall not go out as many slaves. Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself. He's, this is not, God just said, there shall be no adultery among you. He's talking about taking her as a wife. It's like an arranged marriage. A poor man sells his daughter to a rich man and hope that she would be his wife, become a permanent member of the household. Israelite women, when they were married in the household, they become free citizens. They were no longer servants. They were no longer slaves. They were no longer... So he's, he's giving his daughter to, to, of course, benefit him as well, but, but to benefit her that she would have a life above the life that he can give her. It's easy for us to see, now for us to see reading this, how 
you know, sinful men might abuse this statute. But you got to remember, chapter 20 was just a chapter ago, and he commands, there will be no adultery. And we talked about what all that means and how Jesus interpreted that. So the idea that you can just grab a, you know, a, a scuzzball, can just grab a servant girl and do whatever, that's, that's not in view in God's commandments. And to make that abundantly clear, I want to make sure you see this. It says, it says from 8 to 11, it tells the people of Israel that female servants are not to be mistreated. Verse 8 says, if he takes him, basically if he takes him for a wife, you know, as he designated him for himself, and it says if he is displeased with her for any reason, then he was not allowed to treat her any way he pleased. He was obliged to let her return to be redeemed to her own family, not to sell her to some foreign people as a slave, uh, just a, a slave trader would do. And the text specifically says that if that happens, the man is the one sinning. It says he has broken faith with her. He has broken faith with her in the marriage covenant. So not only does it say you can't treat her however you want to, you need to if, if you're not going to honor your commitment, your covenant, you need to let her be redeemed back to her family. But you also need to make sure that you understand that you're breaking faith with her when you do this. And in verse 9 through 11, we'll do these and then we'll talk about it if you want to. It says, if he designates her for his son, a lot of times this happened, you know, the... Uh, Wealthy family leader, clan leader, whatever, would take a, a, a woman for his son. You, you, not in the same way, but you see that in, in Isaac going to find a wife and all those kind of things. This is a, a different thing because technically they're selling a servant. Uh, he said if he designates her, the servant that he, he gets from a poor man or from a man who sells his daughter, um, he designates her for his son, which happened. Look at this. He shall deal with her as with a daughter. So, the, of course, a maidservant could gain her freedom by being betrothed to a master's son. As a married woman, we just said that, have the full rights of a free citizen of Israel, no longer servant, no longer slave. But look at this, even in the betrothal period, before they're even married, if he designates her for his son, at that moment, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. He shall deal, it, it's, it, it's a form of, of adoption. So he shall deal with her. She will be a full member at the betrothal. She will be a full member of the family, all the privileges of a daughter of the family. So taking one, a maidservant for one son with the intent to giving him, her to the son, to be married to the son, was a form of adoption. From that point on, you, she would be treated like a daughter, not like a servant. And here's the question. What if the son is a jerk? And he marries someone else instead. So the, the master of the house buys the, uh, the, I don't even like saying buys the girl, that's terrible, but you know what I mean, buys the, the servant girl from the father, and he designates her for the son. The son says, forget that, I'm not marrying her, I'm marrying Betsy down the road. What happens? He says, if he takes another wife to himself, remember, we're, we're not, he says, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. She goes back to her family. So the son marries someone else. She's to be treated like a daughter. 
but if he, I mean, if she's to be treated like a daughter, she's betrothed to the son, but if he goes and says, I don't want her, I want to marry somebody else, she is not to be mistreated. She's not to be treated like a servant. She is to be given food, clothing. She is to be given all the marital rights. She is to be treated like a wife in the home, a daughter in the home. And if you don't do that, if you don't provide for them, if you don't take care of them, then you need, you need to send her back to her family without payment of money. Everybody with me? Okay, sweet. This rule, verses 9 through 11, is intended to keep creepy perverts from abusing their servant girls. You don't buy, you don't buy a servant girl just to use how you please. We've already seen no adultery, no, no fornication, no, no, those things can't happen. But if there is a sinful heart, a wicked heart that would see to do this, he says, no, no, you treat her like a daughter or you send her back to her family. That's the way it works. So this section about slavery, bond servant, whatever, it, it, it shows us how a servant living with an evil master could be redeemed and go home in several different instances. But it also shows us how one with no prospects in life, poor or a father gets in debt and the whole family suffering could improve their station in life uh, and, and could, could make a life. But as we look at these laws, it's obviously this, you know, it's civil in nature. This form of servitude no longer exists, is not here anyway, and is no longer applicable. The principle behind the law is that God shows us what he expects from us in how we treat our employees, our employers, the people in our household, the people that are beneath us or socially beneath us, the people that are above us. God requires that all people be treated with dignity, all people be treated with respect as image bearers of God, regardless of their station in life. And God's people are not to take advantage of those who are in need, but to help them better themselves. That's what this whole thing is about is help them to be taken care of during the six years of their servitude to give them all the provision all the things they need when they go out so they can start their own life so they can rebuild their own life to be free and functioning members of israel and part of a household questions comments (laughs) okay the rest of 21 we're going to kind of breeze through it deals with crime and punishment so Lyle and Evan are going to love all this. The rest of us are just going to bleary-eyed work our way through it. It's a lawyer's dream to work through all this stuff. but It's broke up into three sections. Capital crimes, personal injury crimes, and negligence crimes. So we'll begin with capital crimes. I'll see if I can get done in 15 minutes. Begins with murder. Murder and manslaughter. Says, okay, there it is. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. These are capital crimes. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So we've already seen this case of murder. Death is the only penalty that preserves the value of human life. Any other punishment is inadequate. And this is not a new principle here. It was established in Genesis chapter 9. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made man in his own image. But just remember, we're talking about uh, corporal capital punishment. It is to be administered justly through the ordained authorities. It's never an advocate for revenge or bloodlust or, or anything like that. It's justice through God's ordained authority. But even here in verses 13 and 14, which we just read, 
God also talks about what we might call manslaughter. What's in view here is unintended killing, like in a moment of passion or the heat of an argument. One is killed by violence, but it's not premeditated. It's unintentional. Uh, God designates places where that person can flee to. In most ancient cultures, if uh, someone is killed, a victim, uh, the victim's relatives would take revenge as soon as possible. So you'd be walking down the street and their, that family would come and they'd kill you. Uh, so God, um, God provides a way for justice to be done. Uh, later in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, he designates six cities of refuge that you could run to. And if you killed someone unintentionally, you'd flee to one of those cities, you'd enter God's sanctuary, you'd put your hands on God's altar, and from that point on, you could not be touched until the authorities had a chance to investigate. If the elders judged that it was unintentional, it was an accident, it couldn't be helped, uh, then you'd be allowed to live. But if not, you would still die for taking an innocent life, even if it was unintentional. There's actually an example of this in the Bible. 1 Kings chapter 2, a man named Joab who killed, uh, who did he kill? He killed, he killed Adonijah maybe and Amasa, I think, and one other person. I, I, I may have that wrong, but he killed two or three people. He was uh, loyal to David and he killed two or three people. And when Solomon took over, he ran to one of these cities. He put his hands on the altar and he's ripped away from it and executed anyway because he shed innocent blood. So what you see in these things is that human life is valuable to God, made in the image of God. In the, in the servitude laws, the slavery laws, in the murder laws, and the manslaughter laws, it, valuable to human life. Okay? Let's get through the capital crimes, and then we'll do some more questions if you want. The next capital crime, you're going to love this one. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Don't do it. So I had to do a little digging. I am not, uh, I love working with the Greek text of the New Testament, and even the Greek text of the old, the Septuagint. I'm not a great Hebrew scholar, so I had to kind of look up some of these words. Uh, this word, strike, is, is the word is nakah, and it's in the, I know you're not going to care about this, but it's in the hifil stem, which means the different ways the same word is used in different stems, and it means not just to smack somebody, but to beat them or to assault them. You know, it's more than just a smack. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament for just an all-out assault, even to the point of attempted murder. Now, it may seem harsh to us to hear God say, whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death, but we've already seen in the commandments themselves that God places a very high value on the family. The fifth commandment says we are to honor our parents, honor our father and mother, and this law preserves the family, thereby preserving the nation as they go into the promised land. And protecting the family and the structure of the family preserves how God's instruction is to be passed down from father to son, from parents to children, as we see in Deuteronomy. So it was very, very important, not just for, hey, don't do it because it's a bad thing to do, but for the survival of the nation, that they are to pass down God's law, they are to be a nation of family units. We've already seen that before in the, in the context. So we've already done verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. We've already seen that. Verse 17 says, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. The idea here is not just a single act of disrespect. Um, it means 
having a contemptible, total rejection and rebellion of parental authority and honor. To curse your parents was basically, in this sense, to disown them. And what's interesting, and I'm not sure I wrap my brain around this completely, so maybe you guys can help me. Jesus applies this law right here, 2117, to children not caring for their parents in their old age. It says in Matthew 15, He answered them, and why do you break, he's talking to the Pharisees, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother. That's the command from Genesis, uh, Exodus 20. And then he quotes this command. And he says, and whoever reviles his father, curses father or mother, must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what, would you, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your traditions, you have made void the word of God. You see how he uses this, you shall not curse your father or mother or be put to death. He uses it against the Pharisees saying to them, you're not taking care of your you're not honoring your father and mother by saying, oh, all my stuff's dedicated to God, even though you ain't gave it to God. He's using this to show that this is a breach of this command. Anybody want to take a stab at that? I don't have no great answer. Well, I think, I think what he was doing, he was That's right. Yeah, yeah. So we take what's been given to us and we pervert it. We pervert it. How is not caring for them? We know how it's not honoring them. So that's an easy one. But why does he say if you revile your father and mother or curse your father and mother and he applies it to them not taking care of their parents in the way that honors them? Do you think it could be, and I'm just asking, I don't have a definitive answer, you think it could be that the idea of the command is not just to say a curse, oh, you're terrible, but to curse them in the sense that you not disown them, but leave them to their own devices when you should be the one taking care of them? Okay, I'll take that as I don't know. We'll move on. That's the way that I take it. I, I, I see that reviling them, cursing them in this sense is neglecting what you're supposed to be doing for them. So, in these commands, these are all capital crimes, death penalty results. In them, we see the value of life. We see God's standards of justice. We see the value of the family. We are to honor human life. We're made in the image of God as well as honoring the family structure. And now we're not going to get through the last two, but I'm going to do one more just so we can get um, uh, one more. Um, this is non, non-fatal personal injury. Now, not every case is covered here, but in these we see really the basic principles of justice when someone is hurt. Okay, when we hurt someone or cause someone to be hurt. And the basic theme of them all is if you injure someone or if you cause someone, even through neglect, to be injured, you're responsible to make restitution for your actions. It says in verse 18, When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff... 
He who struck him shall be clear, meaning you, you won't die because he didn't die. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly heal, healed, meaning he will pay for his medical bills. So if you assault another person and it doesn't kill them, but there's injury incurred, whether it's in the heat of the moment, whether you didn't intend to, you are to compensate the victim for the loss of their income, for being in their bed, for the recovery, and for having them healed for the medical expenses that uh, would in be incurred to that. Now, what happens if you strike them and they die? We've already talked about that. We've already talked about manslaughter. We've already talked about murder. So, but make sure you notice, it's not just the injury but also the loss that the injury caused. You're responsible for what it does to someone's life as well as what it does to someone's body. And these laws of restitution, we could call them that, they also apply to the lowest people on the social standing. We're going to talk about pregnant women and we're going to talk about slaves and then we'll be done. It says, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. What does that mean? You die. You die. Life for life. If you kill your slave, you die. He says, but if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Wait a minute. What does that mean? No, I don't. So that, that is what, yes, yes, yes and no. He said it's because it's his property. In this indentured servitude, in this bondservant model that we're looking at here, the slave is not your property. It's not your property. It's a person made in the image of God that must be treated with dignity, treated fairly. So if the slave dies, master's guilty of murder. You die. Simple as that. Killing a slave is a capital crime in Israel. They're not their property. It's in God's law. They're human beings, image of God. But if a slave lived, it says there's no further payment necessary. Now, we've already talked about the injury, the medical bills, those kind of things. The master's already told, been told you have to take care of them, you have to feed them, you have to provide for them while they're in your house. So all of that still applies, and you would have to, for lack of a better way to put it, pay for them to be nursed back to health. So if the slave lived... There's no further payment other than the medical bills the, and the loss of wages because the master would lose the work of the, the servant through this time of healing. And we're already told that the, the master must provide for the servant's needs. So he would have to care for them. He would have to nurse them back to health. And he would lose all of the pro proceeds from their work through his injury. So it, it don't seem fair, though, that they just... Uh, you know, that you know, you could just beat them and all you get is to lose your... So just hold on to that, okay? Just hold on to that thought because we're going to see it gets even worse than that for the master who does such a thing. Law of restitution also applies to accidental injury. When, a man when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. Look, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Not only is it the husband who says, you owe me, but it's the court, the law, the judges, the elders who say, you must pay for this that you have done. He says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
We see here is God holds us responsible even when we injure others in unintentionally or accidentally. They're doing wrong by fighting, but the assumption here is that they didn't intend to hit a pregnant woman. They didn't intend to cause a premature birth. But even if there is no injury, the fact that their actions caused a premature birth and endangered people, they would pay whatever the husband said was uh, just fine and the authorities determined was a just fine. Their actions threatened the lives of two of the most vulnerable people in society. So the no harm, no foul rule does not apply. God values his image bearers. But if there is injury, then this section, verse 23 and 24, is called the lex talionis. It means the law of retaliation. And you've probably heard it many times before. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. What basically the principle here is that the punishment must fit the crime. So there's not a one-size-all fits punishment. If there's harm, whatever is harmed, that's what you lose. So you harm somebody's eye, you lose an eye. You harm somebody's tooth, you lose a tooth. You, you take somebody's life, you lose your life. And notice it says life for life. So here's a pretty good indication that God holds an unborn baby as a full image bearer of God with dignity whose life is valuable. And if that baby dies by action of yours, it's murder. So it's pretty simple right here, pretty laid out in the law. But the lex talionis also applies to slaves. This is why I told you to hold on. This is probably the last one we'll read tonight. Look at this. Now we talked about if, a, if you beat your slave and they're injured, you, there's no further payment that you have uh, as far as fines go. But it says, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So understand what this is saying. If a master so much has knocked out the tooth of his slave, the slave would be freed. And he would be given all the rights and all the wages that was due to him in Deuteronomy that we saw. So he wouldn't just be booted out the house. He would be given all the things that we're told that he has to be given uh, on the, in the seventh year in Deuteronomy. There's no other law in the ancient world like this. No other society protected their servants like this. But it says here, because every person made in the image of God. So you can imagine now, you're, you're, a, you're a master or you're a... You call them employer if you want to, if you think of them as bond servants, but you're the master of a slave. Aren't you going to think twice before you go to beating on one of your slaves? I mean, if you accidentally kill them, you die. That's it, you know? Death penalty if you accidentally kill them. If you injure them, not only do you have to make it right and you have to make sure their medical bills are paid, make sure they're healed, make sure you take care of them, but when they get better, they get freed and you have to give them all the stuff early, years early, however long it is, doesn't matter. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and your servant goes free. The application for us is that we're responsible for our actions when they hurt someone, even unintentionally. We must do right by them. So I'm going to let you finish uh, later. We, we run out of time. But verses 28 through 32 or 36, I think, at the, uh, at the end of this chapter, basically they all deal with negligence. So it says in, well, let me just do one verse and then we'll go. It says, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. Animal kills a human, animal dies. Simple as that. 
and its flesh shall not be eaten. It's not to profit. It's not to profit the owner of the animal. It's to be killed and incinerated. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. It's not his fault. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. You see it? So it is a, it's your responsibility. Negligence is criminal in God's law. So if it happens once, we kill the animal, it's just a bad animal, okay, you're free. If it happens more than once, or if it happens more than once with a set of animals or the same owner, you are negligent in the way that, in the way that you have handled these things. And it says then after that, if, if the family so chooses, they can give a, they can impose a ransom on him so he can keep his life, and they would set the price uh, I guess, man, I'm going to read the rest of it. I don't care. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If it gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Now that's not fair. But have you ever heard? I say it's not fair. Have you ever heard? Where have we seen 30 shekels of silver before? Son of God, given by God, sold for the price of a slave gored by an ox to death to redeem mankind. So overall, what you see in these, and it keeps going, talking about if you dig a pit and somebody falls in a pit, you're negligent. You know, it talks about negligence. Um, and so what we see in these three sections is we see God values human life, and we should too. We see that we're responsible for the injuries we cause, the injuries we allow to be caused. We're responsible for negligence if we do something uh, and don't think about an injury that may be caused to someone by something that we do. So what we're seeing as these case laws are being presented to us are applications of the Ten Commandments that are down to where we live and they're showing us how to love our neighbor as ourself. And the reality of these crimes and punishments is that it goes much, much deeper than just don't murder. It goes, don't, don't be negligent in protecting people. So when you hear us talk about the Ten Commandments, and we did when we went through them, we said the, the law is don't kill, but behind the law is also you must preserve life. And we say, that's not in the Ten Commandments. No, it's in the case law that applies the Ten Commandments. Not only do you not kill, but you do all you can to preserve life, preserve dignity, preserve the image of God. Questions, comments before we go? Can you go back to verse 21? I guess. Are you going to ask me a question I can't answer? I don't know. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. It says if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. The idea is that the slave is making him money in the work that he's doing. Uh, I, I think, this is my opinion, and I, I can't back it up from that verse, but I bet I can back it up from other places, that it doesn't matter if it's a day or two, three or four or five days. If he dies of his injuries, that's murder. Yeah.
Ah, so the NIV says he's not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two. I don't know what the Hebrew is there. I haven't looked at it. There, because it's his money. Oh, I'm I'm gonna look that up. Uh, let's pray and then I'll look it up. Father, we do love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for um, thank you for thank you for the inspiration and inerrancy of your word. Thank you for the fact that we we wrestle with some of these things. Thank you for the fact that we know that that you are good and you are benevolent and your law is good and your law is benevolent. And God, if we if we can't make it fit with how we feel, then we have to adjust our feelings. God, we pray that you would help us to see who you are, that you would help us to see the commands, the laws that you've given and how they apply to us. And we thank you for Jesus who kept all of your law that we might be forgiven for our sin. God, help us to go forth and uh, just prepare ourselves for Resurrection Sunday, God, and for Monday Thursday and for uh, just the um, uh, beautiful thing that you have done for us, God, in giving us yourself. We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name.